6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 2 through 5. Well, we're in Jeremiah. We are in chapter 2. And uh, you'll find our progress in Jeremiah will be very nonlinear. That is, we will go fast. You know, we won't go at the same speed all the time. Uh, we did take chapter 1 last time, just had introduction, background. But now we're in chapter 2. And I might point out the chapters 2 through 6 are a very natural unit. I don't know what progress we'll make tonight. Uh, depends on what diversions we get into. But we can move right along because you will get the flavor. Uh, there'll be some comments as we go, but you will. It, it's a, it's a, a lyrical passage that um, pretty much will speak for itself. So we could just skim right on through to chapter 6. If we make it that far, you should understand that chapters 2 through 6 are a natural unit. This happens to be um, uh, one of the passages there's not too much controversy over in terms of its placement. The comments that we're going to have here are those that Jeremiah apparently put forth during the reign of Josiah the king. He was the good guy. He was the guy that had the the um, you know the uh, revival. It didn't last, unfortunately, but but he is uh, accredited as a, a very strong uh, king in a spiritual sense. And of course, uh, we see evidence of that not only with Jeremiah, but also having raised people like Ezekiel and and Daniel. Were, were brought up in Josiah's reign. And Daniel was deported as a teenager in the first Babylonian um, captivity. And, and uh, uh, But you, you, as we read Daniel's life, you can't help but uh, recognize that he was the beneficiary of a very sound background. And that uh, is all points to Josiah's reign. <clears throat> and uh, Jeremiah also, in effect, uh, owes him a debt. One of the things we're going to discover as we get into the next several chapters is you're going to find it very eloquent. And before I forget to mention it, it's kind of fun to jump in, is recognizing what um, Jeremiah said earlier in verse 6 in chapter 1. You know, he's trying to cop out of the Lord saying, Oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak for I am a child. <laughs> well, the uh, Spirit of God does remarkable things because you're going to find not only is Jeremiah lyrical, but one of the passages that we will come across in chapter 4, verse 23 through 26, is regarded as the most forceful passage in prophecy in terms of the way it's expressed, eloquence. So you should recognize that uh, Jeremiah, like Moses, said, hey, you know, I'm, I can't handle this. I don't have any gifts. <laughs> Lord takes care of that. And so uh, we'll see evidence of that. I'm always reminded of Peter, as we watched Peter during the, um, his uh, days as a disciple. He was, he was constantly with, had foot and mouth disease. He would always shoot off his mouth and say the wrong thing at the right time. Well, it's interesting that from Acts chapter 2 on, we see a different Peter, an articulate, eloquent, well-organized, 
masterful scholar of of rhetoric. Uh, it's just marvelous. Uh, his, his, his sermon in Acts 2 and his sermon in Acts 3, both are masterpieces. And we see uh, what the Spirit of God can do to a man. And here Jeremiah, who uh, felt that he was inadequate, and we're going to see him in the next several chapters uh, show his his um, uh, what God can do through his uh, Spirit. Now, we're going to see here uh, the uh, a plaintiff's um, plea of a uh, insulted Lord. We're going to experience God's indignation. We're yet going to see through all of that his love for his people and for the land. And yet he will also pronounce the certainty of doom on those that are unrepentant. And yet also salvation for those that will be people of faith. And uh, so we're also going to see a contrast Bear in mind that Jeremiah is speaking to Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom has been taken into slavery a century a century before. House of Israel split in the Civil War. The northern kingdom went from bad to worse. Only one king in Israel, that is the northern kingdom, did anything at all positive, and that was only when he was almost forced to. They really had a bad scene, and God has the Assyrians take them into slavery a century earlier. And one of the things that Jeremiah makes the case for is to contrast. He's speaking to Judah, the southern kingdom, who should have had the northern kingdom as an example. They went into idolatry, and God punished them. And he's saying to Judah that the Judah has more visibility, had the benefit of you know, more availability of prophets and things. So they are held even more guilty than Israel. So he's going to make that case as we go here. Um, if we read from chapter 2 through the end of chapter 6 and just read it together, uh, it would be, there is, there's very little uh, ex explanation or supplemental comments that you really need. Some passages in Scripture are pretty hard without some background, but with the background we had last time, this should flow pretty, pretty straightforward. But as we go, one other thing, just to be alert to a couple of things, be alert to the New Testament sound of it. Bear in mind, so much of what we're going to hear may sound familiar, but recognize you're coming at it from a New Testament background. And it's startling to realize we're in the, in the very core of the Old Testament here with Jeremiah. Chapter 2, verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, and the first fruits of his increase, all that devour him shall offend. Evil shall come upon them, saith the Lord. Hear ye the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, What, is, what iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they have gone... Let, let me back up. Let's, let's pick up a little more here. His first thought that surfaces here very clearly is the concept of the first love. Think back in each of our own personal experiences, that passion, that excitement, that preoccupation that accompanies a first love. It's, it's, it's true in all our lives, whether it's uh, in terms of personal relationships, in terms of uh, the two lovers, 
or, or almost anything. You can, you, you can even apply it to hobbies and things. When you first get into it, that excitement, that joy, that whatever it is, there's, that, there's a freshness, there's a vitality, there's a, there's a, a, a reality. There is a, a total lack of distraction involved. There's an obsession involved, okay? And, 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 and um, the Lord is saying here, thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth. He's given him credit for having felt that way sometime before. The love of thine espousals when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not so. Now, as we read this, you students of the Scripture are probably already putting in the margins Revelation chapter 2. Right? Revelation, that's singular. If I didn't say it clearly, Revelation, singular. Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus Christ dictates seven letters to se seven churches, which were not only literal churches, but representative churches, not only through all history, but through all dimensions of spiritual growth. That sevenfold map gives you a place where you can map all of history spiritually, the church history, and, and our own personal lives. But in the first one, the letter to the Ephesians, who did a tremendous job at keeping out false doctrine, they tried them who say they are apostles that are not, and so forth. But what was his complaint with the Ephesians? You left your first love. They were too busy in the service of the king that they didn't have time for the king. What a danger that is for you and I. And that's exactly what the Lord is accusing Israel here of, having lost their first love. Verse, I think we took it down to about verse 5. Um, we're going to see, by the way, this analogy of with espousals and a bride and a husband used all through here. Hosea makes us, leads out that very heavily, but so does Isaiah, and also Jeremiah. We're going to see a lot of that as we go through this evening. But anyway, chapter 5, I mean, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. Thus saith the Lord, what iniquity... Have your fathers found in me that they are gone far from me and have walked after vanity and are become vain? What a bizarre thing for God to say. Now, it's obviously borders, it's, it's obviously a rhetorical device. It borders, it borders on sarcasm. For God to say to them, what sin have you found in me, Israel, that you've gone so far from me? I mean, we had it together. I took care of you. There was, a, there was a relationship. And you have turned from me and run off after other things. What great harm, you know, what great sin did I do to you, Israel, to cause you to do this? You know, it's an interesting thing. It's a rhetorical device. It's obviously a rhetorical type of question. It doesn't have a, you know, an answer, in fact. But it also, you can't help but see the passion involved. It's not an intellectual thing. This isn't a, gee, you kept the law, you didn't keep the law, or this T wasn't crossed, or whatever. It's a question that um, uh, comes from passion, comes from caring. What iniquity have your fathers found in me, that they are gone far from me, and have walked after vanity, and are become vain? Neither said they, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through the land of deserts and of pits, and through a land of grot and, the sh uh, and of the shadow of death, through a land that no man passed through and where no man dwelt? I brought you into a plentiful country to eat of its fruit and its goodness, 
And when he entered, he defiled my land and made mine heritage an abomination. You know, he took care of them. He brought them to the land of milk and honey. They're there. And they have turned this into a land of defilement, a land of abomination, a land that's a disgrace. Is he speaking because they didn't cultivate it right? Or they built, uh, you know, too, too much traffic? Uh, no, he's talking about it spiritually. They're going, they're whoring after false idols. We're going to see that all the way through here. Verse 8, the priest said not, where is the Lord? And they that handle the law knew me not. The rulers also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Baal, you'll hear that term a lot. The word actually means Lord or Master in the Canaanite tongue. Personal name was Hadad. He was the chief male object of the Canaanite or Phoenician uh, worship. He was um, cruel, ruthless, and so forth. And, we're, and we're, that'll have impact here as we go a little further. From verse 9, now for a few verses, we're going to change the style of the idiom. It's going to, the Lord is going to sound like the prosecutor in law, in a court. He's going to shift the style of his presentation and speak like an attorney, sort of. Verse 9, Wherefore I will yet plead with you, saith the Lord, and with your children's children will I plead, and pass over the coasts of Kittim and Sea, and send unto Kedar, and consider diligently, and see if there be such a thing. Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Incidentally, um, this Kittim and Kedar doesn't mean much to you probably, but Kittim was the Phoenician Kitan, probably in Cyprus. It's, it's call it way to the west. And uh, Kedar is a town on the eastern edge of the Arabian desert. It's to the east. So this is sort of, if we're doing Cal, this is like saying from, from Seattle to Orlando. Is a, if we were saying it in a, you know, in a U.S. idiom, he's saying from Kittim to Kedar, you know, from, from, from California to Maine. It's actually going from west to east, so I suppose, yeah, northeast to south. Anyway, uh, it's a geographic thing that would be lost on us unless you happen to know, know your, your biblical geography here. He's saying, pass over the coast and, and see, and send unto Kedar and consider diligently and see if there be such a thing. There was a basis for this, this uh, rejection. You're hearing a insulted and rejected Lord uh, speaking here. Then he raises the question: Hath a nation changed their gods? They don't change their gods. Even even nations that worship idols don't change their idols. Why does Israel change their God? The living, you know, they have the benefit of the living Lord. Have the nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods. In other words, they're not even real gods, but they don't even bother changing those. But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. What's the undercurrent here? The whole big issue is idolatry. Idolatry. We get to verse 12, which is a strong verse. Be appalled, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord. And the Hebrew other way of rendering is to shudder with a great horror. This is not an intellectual exercise. It's not just some doctrinal 
technicality, it's going to be a vivid, painful, consuming reality that they're going to be faced with here shortly. Now, verse 13 is kind of fun. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've, come, they've done it two ways. They've rejected that which is good, and they've also embraced that which is worthless. Two errors, really. That's what he's saying, you see. For they have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. What an interesting title. What an interesting title. If that sounds familiar, it's because you encountered it in Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, and Isaiah 55, verse 1, if you remember the Isaiah study. But perhaps even more familiar in John 4 and John 7. Who claimed to be the living water? Jesus Christ. So that was the, you know, what, the fourth or fifth time he said it. Because he said it here in Jeremiah, and he said it in Isaiah 12 and 50, Isaiah 55, and John 4 and John 7, which tells me by instinct that I probably missed two of them. Because I bet you he said it seven times. I don't know that. That's your little challenge to go home with your Strong's Concordance and check it out. But anyway, the, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You know, it's kind of interesting. Something else that I just put in my mind, you know, when Assyria conquered Israel, uh, Israel, that is the northern kingdom, took them slaves, there were some that stayed behind. They didn't all go into slaves. There were still a few there and some Assyrians that stayed there that amalgamated. And it became, you know, they stayed in the land. And they became Samaritans. The mix of the residual Judaism and some a couple of tablespoons of Assyrian background led to a, you know, a uh, is the root, if you will, of, of, of what's called the Samaritans, these what sometimes uh, some scholars call half-Jews. They're sort of Jewish, but they're not really. And how interesting it is that our Lord Jesus Christ detoured one day with his disciples. They sent them on an errand. He sent them on an errand in the village to get some groceries and things. He had a date by a well with a Samaritan woman, right? And what was the issue there? Living water. Living water. Kind of interesting. Do you sort of get the feeling it's all designed? Huh? Proves conclusively that Jeremiah was written sometime after the Gospel of John, doesn't it? Um, <clears throat> no, if you apply textual principles of textual criticism, you can come to such profound insights like that. So, uh, um, anyway, enough of that. Verse 14, is Israel a servant? Is he a home-born slave? Why is he spoiled? The young lions roared upon him and yelled, and they made his land waste, and the cities are burned without inhabitant. Also the children of Memphis and Topinhes have broken the crown of thy head. Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God when he led thee by the way? Incidentally, up here, uh, uh, here is um, um, referring to several things, but um, uh, this business of the young lions and so forth, um, a lot of there, there are some translational issues. Some scholars argue as to which this may really refer to. Uh, Memphis, uh, first of all, some geography you get. The children of Memphis and have Topanis is um, are there two Egyptian cities. Memphis is the classical ancient capital of Lower Egypt, and Topanis 
sometimes by the Greeks called Daphne, was at the northeastern border. So there again, you've got a, a span, if you will, of a, what's called a synecdoche rhetorically. That is, you take the, the specific for the general and the general for the specific. You know, it, it's uh, um, if you say someone spreads a nice table, you don't mean the table, you mean all the food, and you, you, it's a, a term used for the generic, right? And sometimes geographically, you use the city's meaning the land, right? And so Memphis and Tophides is another way of saying all of Egypt. Now, the question here then is, this could have reference to some incidents that occurred in 1 Kings 14, but it's more likely that what Jeremiah is really making allusions to is the suffering they felt from Egypt when Josiah the king was killed at Megiddo by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. Josiah, this popular king, was tangled up in some politics, and he was advised against it but didn't listen, and ended up dying at uh, Megiddo in a battle with the Egyptians. And, um, and that was a great blow to the nation, and, uh, uh, and that, that could very well be what, uh, uh, what uh, Jeremiah is making an allusion to, okay? Hast thou not procured this unto thyself, in that thou hast forsaken... The Lord thy God, when he led thee by the way. All the way through, you're going to get, he's going to talk about problems and troubles, but he's going to emphasize that they're bringing it on themselves. Bringing it on themselves. And now, what hast thou to do in the way of Egypt? To drink the waters of Shihor. Or what hast thou to do in the way of Assyria? To drink the waters of the river. Now, Sihor, by the way, is a uh, one a way to refer to the Nile. It's not a name for the Nile. It's actually a little more complicated. I won't take you through that. It's sort of a literary way. It's a river of mysterious origin. So is the Nile. So it's, a, it's a literary way of referring to the Nile. What, you know, what do you do in the way of Egypt to drink the waters of Sihor? Okay. Or what is thou to do in the way of Assyria to drink the waters of the river? Probably the Euphrates, right? Thine own wickedness shall correct thee, and thy backsliding shall reprove thee. Know therefore and see that it is an evil thing and bitter that thou hast forsaken the Lord thy God, and that my fear is not in thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse 20. For of old I have broken thy yoke, and burst thy bands. And thou saidst, I will not transgress. And when did they say that? When did Israel say that? At Sinai, the Ten Commandments. And we're going to keep your law, Lord. <laughs> For of old have I broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. That is, he delivered them from Egypt, right? And thou sayest, I will not transgress. That's a reference to Sinai when the law was given. And Israel said, hey, we'd keep it. When upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. Now, this will become more vivid if you have background in the Canaanite worship, which was basically um, uh, uh, preoccupied with sex and fertility rites, typically practiced on hills and typically practiced in what's called groves. All through the Old Testament, you'll find reference to the groves. And it's just, uh, 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 don't just visualize a group of trees. These are typically carved to become phallic symbols. It's also why... You'll find in in the Torah that you never God never wants his altars built near the groves. He never wants trees near the altar. They are to be separate. And that uh, 
The concept of the groves and the trees and the hilltops is suggestive the more you know about the Canaanite worship system. What he's saying is, um, here he delivers them, he broke their yoke, took care of them, and they said they would not. They would keep his laws, and they end up on every high hill, under every green tree, thou wanderest playing the harlot. You wouldn't get the overtone of that unless you recognize the, that the uh, hilltops and trees were the location of these Canaanite uh, fertility rites. That had taken over the land. See, bear in mind, now see, Judaism is, is dead. They're idol worshiping. One of the great things that happens is that they discover a copy of the law, Book of Deuteronomy in the temple. Now, what state was the temple in if they stumble going through some storeroom? A copy of the law. Wow, isn't this neat? Hey, have you seen this thing? Wow, big deal. It becomes a national event. And it was part of the, re the revival. Verse 21. Yet I planted thee a noble vine, holy a right seed. How then art thou turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? It's graphic enough. Can't add to that. Verse 22. For though thou wash thee with lye and take thee much soap, yet thy iniquity is marked before me, saith the Lord God. There's two kinds. A natron or soda is a mineral alkali, and uh, the other one is a vegetable alkali. But both of them are forms the strongest cleansing agents that they would use industrially or domestically in their in their uh, economy. And you can't scrub off sin with soap. It has to be washed off with blood. In the Levitical sense, as a token, a prophetic token of Jesus Christ, of course, they had the Levitical washings, the sacrifice of blood. But what's it pointing to? The blood of Jesus Christ. Your sins and mine's. Can be, we can be washed clean, washed white as snow, though your sins be as scarlet. Strange idiom, because you think of sin as dirty. You know, though your sins be as scarlet, Isaiah says, they shall be white as wool. Huh? How? By being washed? How? By the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.